following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. You know, the mental model I had starting off this thing was very much hire the smartest people possible, uh, have them have like very siloed metrics and have them compete with each other to generate the results we want. That led to, you know, some honestly very good people um, behaving in some very selfish ways and not necessarily by fault of their own, but by fault of my management. Hey, everybody. Can you do us a favor and fill out a survey on podcastone.com? You'll find the banner on the homepage. It takes less than five minutes, and it really helps us out. That's podcastone.com. Thanks so much. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, we do in-depth interviews with some of today's most significant business leaders. Today, I'm excited to have Tim Chen, who is the CEO and founder of NerdWallet, Tim left the high-powered world of finance to uh, devote himself to explaining how money works for us normal folks. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. So, are you the are you the the alpha nerd at Nerd Wallet, like the the chief nerd officer? I am. I'm the head nerd in charge. <laughs> how did you guys um, come up with the name? By the way. Oh man. Uh... Well, so I think that uh, money should be analytical. I mean, the thing that really bugged me and caused me to start the company was my sister asking me for help finding a credit card. And I've, I I went online and searched and found a bunch of marketing material. And I said, no, this should be like in a spreadsheet. And so, um, I, you know, the idea was to bring a lot of quantitative analysis to uh, answering questions just like that one. So you took all that tiny fine print on the bottom of your credit card statement and actually made sense of it? Yeah, that's right. And I enjoyed doing it. That's why I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and you were a finance guy. So did this company get started with kind of friends and family just because you were on Wall Street? They assume you understand all things money and kind of turn to you for advice? That's right. I, I think everyone has like a Uncle Bob who's an accountant or something that they go to for advice. Uh, I, I am that person in my a family and circle of friends. So it was kind of a natural extension of that. Were you a hedge fund trader or an analyst? What was kind of your your early role before you were an entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I started life off uh, at Credit Suisse. I was a equity research analyst. And then I moved to a hedge fund. Um, I was mostly doing short selling of uh, you know technology companies. So really diving into how those companies worked, uh, doing a lot of due diligence with management teams and factory sites and things like that. So that was a lot of fun. How did you go from the leap from helping you, your sister and friends with credit cards to saying, you know what, this could be a company? That's a funny story. The first indication was, uh, so I made a spreadsheet and emailed it to my sister. And then I was like, you know what, this spreadsheet's actually pretty helpful. Because what I had done is I had taken you know the major credit cards from the biggest issuers and put them all on a spreadsheet in a way that you could compare them apples to apples. And so I forwarded it to some friends too. And then they started forwarding it around as well. And then I, I think that's when the idea really popped into my head. And were you at the time, were you working or looking? I, I, I was going through history and obviously this is 2008, 2009, a very uh, traumatic time for everyone on in Wall Street. Were you um, working at the time or looking for a job? 
I was actually looking for a job. I uh, was unceremoniously fired on like something like Christmas Day. (laughs) So (laughs) that was rough. And then, uh, yeah, and then my sister happened to call me like uh, maybe two weeks later and asked me to help her find a credit card. She's like, yeah, Tim, you have time on your hands. You can go through all the the small print for me while while I'm doing my thing. That's right, yeah. And so, okay, so you get, you're sending the spreadsheet out and you're getting some good feedback. Now, how did you go from that to be like, you know what, I'm going to pursue this full time and you know, launch a site? Yeah, so I hadn't coded in like 10 years, but I knew that it would be pretty straightforward to turn that spreadsheet into a website that was interactive. Uh, so I did that and then quickly realized uh, that it was going to be really tough to get people to show up to the website. I think that's the problem most entrepreneurs run into. Yeah. Uh, and then also the other thing that became immediately obvious uh, was that there are maybe like one or two major consumer problems that um, this spreadsheet and this website are addressing. Uh, the first is that it's downright impossible to shop for most financial products. Uh, no one really has an incentive to make them shoppable. Uh, a lot of the big retail banks out there, for example, um, have their own lines of products and they really try to cross-sell you between them. Mm-hmm. But the rates there aren't as good as what you can find online. Uh, so there is a big opportunity there. And then I noticed another big problem too, uh, which is that money is just extremely complicated. Uh, so most consumers don't have like a trusted financial expert to guide them. I know like super rich people uh, can afford to hire a really high-powered team of financial advisor, you know, tax advisor, uh, lawyer, to help them watch their back, essentially. Um, but for most people, you just don't even know what you're missing, right? Like, I, I saw this statistic of the number of people who fail to file for food stamps and the earned income tax credit, for example, who qualify. It's like millions of people a year who really need it, who just don't even know that they need mm-hmm. to go do that. So I think there's a big opportunity for someone to help clear that up. And that's kind of where we're thinking in terms of our future roadmap. If you were advising everyone right now in America, what was the, what's the one move they could do right now to make their lives um, you know, financially better? Um, what's the biggest waste? What's the biggest wasted opportunity? Yeah, there's a lot of them. But the one I'll focus on is um, you know, 401k fees. I mean, so most people who leave one employer to go to another uh, don't end up rolling that over. And it is very, very typical for a 401k plan to have a 1% annual fee. You can imagine over 30 or 40 years, that can really compound into a, a lot of money. Uh, so I, I wish everyone would just uh, do that. Now, those funds don't necessarily make it easy to figure out what your fees are or that kind of thing. And there's a lot of inertia behind it too, but it's really not that hard of a process. Um, if you are to call up like Vanguard or something and uh, have them roll it over for you, it's pretty straightforward. And in terms of, so take me back here. So you you were launching the credit card site. You had an idea. You were, you know, I guess slowly. You haven't coded in ten years, so you were probably slowly learning how this all works. What was your first site like, and how did it go? Did you did you get a lot of traction instantly, or was it a real grind? Kind of take me through that that little uh, that exercise. It was it, it was a very scarring memory. It was an abomination of a website. <laughs> what I didn't realize until. I started user testing this thing is that most people don't think like a financial analyst in the sense of like, like when I look at it, I say, just give me the data. I don't want any of your opinions. I just want numbers in a spreadsheet that I can sort and I'll make my own opinion. Right. (laughs) Most people want, um, some, some, uh, some understanding from their advisor 
in terms of what they're trying to do. And then, you know, just give me the answer. Just give me the one or two that uh, really match what I need. And don't make me think about these numbers. Don't make me learn what all these things mean. Uh, just help me get to a good answer. And so, so once you start getting into those nuances, um, you can kind of understand, like, why our first product was, was so awful. Uh, another interesting vector was uh, realizing that people get credit cards for a lot of different reasons. So it's very easy uh, to have coastal bias and be very myopic and think, well, gee, most of the people I know um, come from financial services uh, and fly a lot and things like that. But what we stepped back and realized over time um, by talking to people was ultimately uh, there's three major reasons people get a credit card. Um, some people are trying to build their credit. Some people are trying to earn as many rewards as possible. Some people are trying to lower their interest payments, uh, either because they have a big upcoming purchase mm -hmm. or because they have some balance they want to transfer, right? And as you can imagine, the product experience needs to be completely different for all three types of experiences. So those are the things we're still getting better at over time. So the first site wasn't the most uh, user-friendly site. What was? How did you save the company? How did you go from kind of putting out a product that you weren't proud of? And obviously, it's hard to get uh, you know traction anywhere, especially when you started doing this. How did it? What was that big breaking point? What, when did you get your lucky break in terms of nerd, nerd wallet going from a hobby to you know an, an actual company? Yeah, so I would say that um, the the biggest struggle was getting consumers attention right so uh, you can either pay for it which is incredibly expensive uh, so for example you could buy people off Google AdWords um, or uh, you can try to be extremely helpful to the consumer such that this thing spreads via word of mouth so our entire thesis from the beginning was to do the latter now going down that path the first thing you run into is well I gotta get you know journalists or some kind of influencers to care about this thing and so um, I spent a lot of time uh, trying to call journalists and getting hung up on and things like that. Yeah, um, we're, we can be real jerks with that sometimes. <laughs> right. And and why should you give me time of day, right? Like, you've never heard of my company. Um, it's built not for you, but for me, uh, the product. And, you know, so so working through that was was quite a challenge in the early days. I think the first big break was from uh, Lifehacker. Uh, we uh, we got mentioned um, as a really useful uh, product for finding um, a credit card. That's all we did back then, and uh, it started sending some traffic our way. Uh, but even after then, it was still uh, you know a couple of years of really pounding the pavement. And back then, was it you and your co-founder kind of working out of a coffee shop or out of your apartment, or did you get some kind of uh, some cheap rent somewhere? How did that work? Was, you started in New York, right? That's right. Yeah. So the first the first year was just me. Uh, I worked from everywhere, including, you know, a hostel in Spain and <laughs> my apartment in New York out of Starbucks, uh, on a EPC that was like $250. Uh, so fond memories, um, ate a lot of subway, um, and definitely was trying to conserve the cash. Yeah. New York city is an expensive place to try to try to start a company. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. So after we uh, started getting some traction, uh, we started uh, adding headcount slowly. Uh, that really wasn't until a year two or three. And you started with credit cards. Did you, looking back, was that kind of were you happy you picked one thing and became an expert on it, opposed to you know trying to be a uh, a one stop shop for all financial advice, or did you wish you had more offerings to begin with? Uh, well, in an ideal world, it would have been great to have a ton of offers to begin with. Um, there was the practicality around what investment level that would take. I mean, to give you a sense of 
what what we're investing. We've got about 350 out of uh, 450 people here are dedicated towards uh, you know just answering financial questions, whether it be building specific tools geared towards specific questions, or you know working on our user services platform, or writing articles specific to certain questions. Or a big chunk of them are actually doing product design and user research. So uh, spending a ton of time like putting stuff in front of uh, customers, measuring, uh, running A/B tests, and trying to figure out what works better. Uh, so it's a it's a big investment. And you mentioned, um, you know, answering questions in terms of, you know, you guys put out a ton of content that can be very specific based on, you know, goals and where you are in life and just, you know, it's very individualized. Where do you get the, how do you decide what to cover? Is it all user generated? Like the, you have, you're answering emails to people that decide to turn into content or you sit around and have kind of strategy sessions saying, oh, we have to cover this mortgage stuff. We have to cover this banking stuff. How do, how do you kind of choose what you cover? Yeah. So uh, it's both. Uh, bottoms up and tops down. Uh, the tops down view is, you know, what? Why do people interact with uh, their financial system? Right? They they either have too much money, too little money, or they need to insure something. Um, usually, you know, insuring your life or your home or your car. Uh, when you have too little money, it's usually be, to pay for college or buy a home, etc. So, so there's a pretty finite set of maybe 12 major financial products that cover those user problems. Uh, so we definitely try to cover all of those. And then definitely on a bottoms-up basis, uh, so we, we've got a user operations team that's constantly you know, chatting with people who have questions. Uh, we see everything under the sun and really getting a ton of user empathy uh, in terms of what people care about. And then in addition to that, um, there are many, many people in the company who spend a ton of time doing user testing or actually going into people's living rooms. Like, uh, I'll probably spend, you know, two, three weeks uh, every six months uh, out on user research trips, going into people's living rooms and asking them questions. And then you start to pick up some, on some trends that are uh, not as immediately obvious that kind of warrant product investment as well. How do you get into people's living rooms? <laughs> yeah, so that's it's actually one of the favorite things I do. Um, so there are, so we we recruit people. Um, we try to usually target people that fit certain criteria. Um, we won't tell them uh, what company we're from, um, but we'll just uh, you know it's it's kind of like those focus group type things uh, or ethnographic studies. Uh, there are two different types. And you say, hey, I'm, I'm we're doing research um, on, on on financial information. You mind we stop by and say hello? Right, exactly. So, um, you know, for example, we'll ask them things like, uh, well, first, we'll, we'll kind of like go into their living room because we want to observe the environment uh, in which they're living. It's it's actually a very helpful context. Um, and then we'll start asking them a specific set of questions. So, for example, on one of the trips, we're asking a lot about how people budget and how people think about um, managing the income and expense volatility that they have uh, from month to month. And uh, those kinds of insights are really helpful when building products. And just a quick break to say this show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum Card backed by the service and security of American Express. What's some of the most creative answers you've heard from um, users? Oh, man. So, uh, well, I, I guess one one theme that you would hear from a lot of different places uh, is that one of the hardest parts is just the unpredictability. I mean, 
So American business has pushed a ton of the volatility and uh, economy onto the workforce, uh, especially people in the service industry or the manufacturing industry, for example. So you're seeing, you know, over half the population who has, you know, substantial variation in income month to month. And then when you when you combine that with uh, life is unpredictable too. You know, you could be on a high deductible healthcare plan, and your kid could break their arm, um, or you know, you could have like. Uh, unexpected events like I heard about car breakdowns a lot for example Mm -hmm. that really trip you up and then so the way people deal with this um, is is pretty varied but you know one thing we heard a lot is that you know people seem to always be saving but uh, accumulating is very challenging and you mentioned you have 400 employees now Uh, that's right so you I, I would love to hear about this kind of how you went from kind of take a step back here again so you were a hedge fund analyst, which is a very kind of, you know, you're living in, it's a very solitary job, right? You're kind of living in, in numbers and spreadsheets and, you know, you're hopping on calls and doing research, but you go from that kind of introverted job to suddenly you find yourself managing a company with 100, 200, 300 people. How did you kind of rise to that task and how did you learn how to do that, you know, whole new job, whole new skill, which very few people know what to do? Right. It's a, well... It's an extremely humbling experience. I'll start there. <laughs> and and you're right. Uh, it, uh, a hedge fund analyst is an extremely solitary job. It's not a teamwork-oriented thing. Um, to go from that environment into, like, you know, synchronized swimming or <laughs> something that requires a lot of people to work together uh, really effectively is a com- complete 180 um, in terms of uh, execution. And, you know, one, one of my favorite stories here that I've read has been about uh, Eddie Lampert and his management at uh, Sears, right? Um, so I, I guess when he went in, he um, kind of applied the hedge fund model to Sears and siloed off a bunch of divisions and then have their own CEO, CFO, and then had them compete with each other. And it, it led to some pretty disastrous results. So two of the examples uh, that I remember well from um, reading that article, I mean, one of them was there was like a Mother's Day circular that would go around in the newspaper every year for Sears. And because the golfing department had a way bigger budget, they outbid, you know, the Mother's Day people for space in that circular. And that didn't make any sense. And then another story was the the shoe department realized that um, if they didn't staff salesmen, people would pick up the shoes and walk over to the other department next to it, and they would have to check them out. So because they were on their own PL, they just understaffed the shoe department, right? I mean Things like this um, are local optima, but have real costs on a global level. And that's kind of like a lot of what um, I had to learn the hard way, especially as we scaled through 50, 60 people. You know, the mental model I had starting off this thing was very much is hire the smartest people possible, uh, have them have like very siloed metrics and have them compete with each other to generate the results we want. So you were your own, your own, you know, level of Eddie Lampert in that case. Exactly right. Yeah, and and that that led to that led to you know some honestly very good people um, behaving in some very selfish ways, and not necessarily by fault of their own, but by fault of my management. Can you show me some? Uh, give me a couple of specific examples. Well, yeah. So so here's one thing that might happen, right? Like, um, you know, there's there's six different people who all want engineering resourcing, right? And the question of how you assign engineering resourcing is kind of arbitrary. Um, it's based on the uh, the what people say and how they represent their business, right? So um, if you create that kind of environment, um, whoever 
is more political or savvy is going to end up getting the engineering resourcing and doing better over time. And then, of course, everyone's going to see that bad behavior and then start imitating it on their own. Right? So that's kind of that works in a hedge fund because you can quantify um, a PM's returns pretty easily and give more capital to them over time. That doesn't make any sense in a business where you're trying to all row the boat in the same direction. What you're saying is people are very astute to term if if you line the incentives up the wrong way, they will just kind of naturally, you know, try to you know work the system in their divisions of their own their own benefit. Right. And yeah, of course, there's uh, varying pr- propensities of people doing that. But that, that's why culture becomes so important. It's both in terms of how you hire, how you set expectations for what you expect from people, what behavior you allow to let slide, um, even like the on the micro level day to day, right? Like, like small things really matter in terms of what you let slide. And then ultimately, yeah, the company culture that you define, it, it's almost like the... Uh, being the legislative, judicial, and uh, executive branch of the government at the same time. So you had this siloed approach where people are going head to head and taking advantage of trying to you know trying to optimize through the divisions. How did you fix that problem? Yeah, I mean, you you can't fix something like that overnight. I mean, I I do think we were fortunate to have uh, very well intentioned people. Uh, so being able to diagnose the problem and talk openly about it um, as a company uh, was. It went a long way. And then we almost reactively ended up um, defining our uh, culture based on uh, solving that problem. Um, so um, our our first set of cultural values that we ever defined as a company included things like ability and willingness to improve and, you know, being candid and constructive with each other and uh, focusing on drivers before solutions. So uh, a lot of that was a bit reactive towards some things that had happened because everyone talks about culture, and culture is one of those kind of squishy terms that you can define it but not define it. It's hard to measure. Um, and every, you know, every company has kind of their Ten Commandments, if you will, or just kind of core values. But how do you take that from being like a feel-good saying to actually making it really happen in your company? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's only squishy until you see it uh, operating badly. <laughs> and I, I think for me the best uh, – the best metaphor is really thinking about like, you know, the difference between the effectiveness of say like the government of a well-functioning democracy versus the government of a really corrupt place, um, that, that doesn't yield a lot of economic return over time. Um, and so you can definitely see those like factors at play very quickly when they're not working well within a company. And so, uh, just like with a, a government, there's a lot of, um, things around, um, being very clear about, uh, what the what the laws are, and then being very quick to enforce when you see deviation mm-hmm. uh, from from those values. So a lot of times, culture is consistency and accountability. For, um, that, that's like the sounds like a core a core uh, anchor in anything you get, you, any company you're doing. Exactly right. And I heard speaking of culture, I think I read somewhere you guys have a famous fail wall in the office. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's very it's very hard to uh, get something right the first time. Um, usually what happens, whether it's a company or a project, is that you put something out into the world, uh, it doesn't quite work. You do a postmortem, you iterate, you try it again and again and again. And I think, you know, I, I would venture to say that most successful startups in uh, recent memory have really embraced that and gotten that right. Now, one of the challenges coming out of financial services is that you have quite the opposite 
motivation. Uh, you don't want your clients to think that you're loosey goosey with the numbers or that you don't know what you're talking about. And so there's there's a lot of uh, orientation towards showing strength in financial services, uh, mm-hmm. defending your numbers and things like that. Uh, so um, what we intentionally try to do is uh, really make people realize it's okay to be wrong about things. It's all about speed of learning, uh, not about getting things right the first time. And taking a quick break to say these days, business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source, however you move your business forward. With Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey. It only takes a few minutes, and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash mysurvey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. So what is, what is this fail wall, and how did it come about? Right. Well, you just put uh, Post-it notes onto the fail wall. Um, uh, whenever you know something happened, you post-mortem it, and you realize that you probably could have done things a lot better. Uh, that's part of the learning process. So it's really just a wall of post-it notes. What are some of the most, uh, what are the favorite fails that people have on the, on the wall? <laughs> well, so the ones I've put on there, um, you know, I, I spent six months trying to like pursue this strategy, uh, for getting the, you know, getting out there to the media more, um, that really was a complete failure. Um, we realized that we could do something else that could, accomplish the same thing in you know one one hundredth of the time and six months is an eternity uh, in a startup i mean that that's almost like a terminal error as a company uh, my takeaway from that was less so that it was a bad idea but more that i should uh more regularly question whether what i'm doing is really the highest impact thing i could be doing what were you what were you doing what was the mistake well so uh we were uh building a tool uh, for credit unions um, that would uh, basically allow people to compare credit union rates. Um, and I really wanted credit unions to help uh, promote this product, um, uh, you know, in various ways. And so I built this thing. I, I ended up spending, you know, months personally doing data entry, collecting uh, all sorts of qualification data for credit unions. Um, and this thing was, I thought, awesome. I put it out there. So I called a credit union um, to pitch this thing. Uh, I should have called them before I built the product, not afterwards. Uh, <laughs> and they said, we would never promote this thing because you're showing our competitors' rates next to ours. And I just kind of like slapped my forehead and said, okay, well, that was a really expensive lesson, but <laughs> never going to build something again without <laughs> vetting it with the with the customer first. Yeah, sell first, build second, right, if you can. That's good. Yeah. 
and you, you have an interesting business model in kind of this whole this this space you're in because you are a content and media business, but you're you're not selling banner ads per se. Like, what is the model? Because you have a different revenue model than say uh, an online uh, a blog or even a uh, like a standard you know magazine. That's right. Yeah, we so our our model is very much like a matchmaker. So um, if if we connect a customer with a account opening, or uh, you know, a new insurance policy, or some kind of bank account, um, then we get a matchmaking fee. How does that work? Because you are getting revenue from people that you're reviewing, or from companies that you're reviewing. How do you kind of stay transparent? And have you ever had big blowouts with a bank or an insurer because you gave them low marks and they threatened to pull revenue or all that kind of stuff? Uh, definitely. Um, so. So this is a very uh, this is the big challenge in our industry. Um, so we uh, maintain editorial independence between our uh, editorial staff and our business units. Uh, so we we keep them separate. Um, our, our writers, for example, are subject matter experts, um, and they make recommendations, but they don't actually know um, which products uh, uh, compensate us and how much they compensate us. Um, I think that's super critical because our entire thesis for uh, being successful in this space is oriented around building long-term consumer trust. Um, now we could we could have gone the other way and said, okay, like let's just try to really ma- uh, maximize and think transactionally about our users, and that'll actually give us a much bigger budget to go advertise on TV uh, or buy users aggressively via you know paid channels. Uh, but both are viable strategies, but but we've really oriented towards the first. Do you have like ten million credit card miles? <laughs> I I do not. Um, I you know it's funny. All the uh, all the execs in the company actually have different credit cards. Um, I think there's actually just a different appetite for how much you want to jump through hoops to really max things out. Um, I'm actually pretty much a cash back flat rate type of person, so I've got my two percent cash back card. Um, but Kevin, who runs our uh, credit cards business, has a ton of credit cards, and you know sometimes I, I really think I should be putting more effort in there. But but I like to keep it simple. Yeah, there's a whole kind of culture on the web. I mean, obviously, I think the internet makes this happen. But you know, you have the the credit card point people that are you know maxing out and spending hours looking through loopholes. You have the the kind of crazy budgeters that you know can live out in the woods and say they've retired when they actually spend so much time just budgeting. Like, are these kind of are they fun to watch and kind of voyeuristic, or are people actually really doing these behaviors? Yeah, well, so I I think um, it is fewer people uh, than the mainstream. Uh, what we've what what I've realized over time is that um, you know most people uh, like to kind of keep it simple. Um, and for all those people who, you know, follow these miles hackers and extreme couponers, there's, you know, like 10 people who are just, um, you know, just busy, uh, and, and, and more focused on other things in life. Uh, so, so, so find, striking the right balance between addressing different groups of people, I think really requires sometimes, um, multiple different approaches. And, you know, banking and personal finance and fintech in general have just evolved so much in just the decade you started since you started nerd wallet everything from you know you can bank on your iphone no problem now and yeah there's so much information out there and so much transparency and you know the research tools are incredible but is for the general consumer is like handling money and finances is the internet and, and mobile stuff made it easier or even more complex well the number of choices uh that you have to choose between has proliferated 
Uh, so in that sense, it's more complex. Uh, the ability to analyze between them uh, has increased, but I think you know sometimes uh, simplicity is better. Uh, where where I really see um, this industry going in the next ten years is, um, I think that people are going to uh, eventually have pretty much full control over their financial lives um, through an app that behaves more like a GPS um, than anything else I can think of in the sense that, you know, you're, you're going to tell this app like, Hey, I, I want to buy a house. And then the app's going to start asking you questions and it's going to give you turn by turn directions on how to get there. Um, and then, you know, over the course, uh, it'll be connected to all your accounts. It'll understand your credit score and it'll, it'll get you to the finish line. Um, but it's going to have the flexibility to do, you know, to add things like, Hey, uh, help me figure out how to retire or help me figure out how to, you know, uh, save for an emergency fund. It could be a, a variety of things. Uh, but I think turn by turn directions is really where this industry is going. Can it stop my credit card from buying alcohol? <laughs> that is a great question. Well, you know, it's, it's funny in, in user research, what popped up repeatedly, um, especially with the younger millennials was, uh, this, this notion of beer money, right? So they, they have like, you know, their fixed expenses and then there's just like the bar tab on the weekend and they, a lot of people, um, actually try to optimize their budgeting around that, that one particular thing. See, it's good. It's good motivation, right? Instead of saving, that's instant, it's instant returns right there. going into the bar. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's funny, speaking of kind of, you know, shifts in behavior, I mean, I feel there's been a big change in everything from the way people work now to the, you know, there's kind of an emphasis on the younger generation is asset light. They don't want that fancy car or, or fancy furniture. They much rather do. Ex- they rather be flexible, have experiences. Are you feeling like? And you give a lot of advice on cars and home buying and insurance. Are you guys seeing that firsthand that people would rather rent and lease or just you know take an Uber or Lyft instead of buying these accumulations, buying these material objects? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to see in the data. I mean. Of, of course, we have so much coastal bias uh, in, in terms of our exposure. I mean, we, we are seeing record numbers of people like shopping for auto loans and auto insurance and all this stuff on our site. I will say, though, that when I go on user research trips to cities like Boston or uh, D.C. or San Francisco even, um, there's definitely a big rift between people in those expensive cities uh, versus uh, the rest of the country. Um, a lot of millennials say things like, None of my friends or I ever think we're going to retire, so we don't want to hear about it. Um, there's a lot, definitely a lot more sharing. Um, there's definitely more Peter Pan syndrome in terms of like people aren't really thinking it's realistic to save for a down payment on a house, uh, so um, they're kind of more focused on just getting through uh, the next month without overrunning their bar tab by too much. And so, really interesting split going on there. And you, you guys, you know, you focus so much on. On financial products, and you're, you know you're 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 experts and masters in all these things. Would you ever think, as a company, of launching a product, maybe launching a nerd wallet bank or a credit card, or you know you know what people like, what people don't like, you know what's kind of what the abuses are and what, what what's fair? Would you ever jump into the actual management yourself, or are you always going to be kind of a reviewer, aggregator, content provider? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I think it's crucial for us to. to be Switzerland, to maintain our impartiality. Um, Otherwise, there's going to be a big bias in terms of uh, what we're trying to push. I mean, you look at the cross-selling scandal at Wells Fargo, and that kind of highlights the incentives uh, that are created. However, I do think that um, we can get 
further and further um, downstream in terms of how our app and product feels. So for example, can we help you handle a lot of your um, basic banking functions without actually being a checking account? Um, can we help you uh, handle some of your financial advisory functions without being a financial advisor? Uh, can we point you in the right direction? Um, and so, so I think I think that's where the lines will blur a little bit. But we're we're never going to offer our own products. Would Would you ever offer or work with kind of you know like a seal of approval? You know, for example, if you go to a supermarket and you have that organic stamp on the uh, on the milk. Was there ever talk of having like you know a Visa card or whatever that's been you know nerd wallet approved? Uh, yeah, we. So that conversation has definitely uh, come up internally. I mean, one of the big challenges in our space and why I think it's taken so long um, for things to become even remotely shoppable is that you know there's there's such a complex personalization problem. So I mean, first of all, you have to qualify for that Visa product, and then even when you do, you don't necessarily know if it's the right one for you. Um, you know, for example, a lot of people who are looking for a balance transfer card should probably get a personal loan or think about credit counseling instead, and and we steer them that way. Um, so it, that personalization problem is really hard. I think that's why we haven't moved forward. And you talked about you know kind of the the tech solution to some of these finance things in the future. Do you see any actual financial product coming around that's going to kind of shake up the world? I mean, there's always you know tricky ETFs and leverage and that kind of thing, but you know. A lot of times there's, there's stock, credit cards, money markets, bonds. Like, Is there going to be a new species of, of, of financial product coming up for consumers? Do you, or are we kind of, we've, had, we've hit all the flavors and we're, we're done for a while. Yeah, the, I think we're done for a while. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, it's like you're either borrowing money to pay for college or buy a house or a car um, or you're depositing extra money or you're insuring something, right? Um, I, I think – those core products have been around for a long time, and um, I, I I can't foresee anything beyond that uh, right now. And as kind of this personal finance expert, let's what pretend I'm like an 18 year old about to enter the the world, the real world, the adult world. What three things would you tell me, or what three things you wish you knew that you know now about just you know the the world of money? Yeah. So, so this is an extremely loaded question. I'll, I'll answer your question first. Um, but then I, I, I'll also explain why I think it's very hard to answer. Um, so, you know, first I think like, uh, it's essential to understand the notion of compounding interest, uh, both in terms of, uh, you know, saving money as well as borrowing money. Um, I was blown away by some of the attitudes that I ran into in terms of credit lines essentially being seen as free money um, in a lot of places. That, that really surprised me. Um, yeah, second, I would, uh, I, I would definitely like want to have people understand the notion of debt. Now, ideally, debt is taken out um, because you believe that by uh, spending this money now, you're going to end up um, bettering yourself in the future, mm-hmm. either like an education or even if it's to get a car so you can drive to your job, right? Um, so there's a big separation between that kind of debt that's an investment versus debt that's just being used to increase expenditure. I think that's critical for people to understand as well. And then finally, um, you know, just some basics around how credit works. And because you can't access any of that debt without some measure of credit. Um, so understanding things like, um, you know, that any any loan product or uh, any, you know, even cell phone service is going to report derogatory marks to your mm-hmm. uh, credit 
support and affect your future borrowing ability um, if you don't if you don't treat them seriously. So I, I'd say those things. Now, in terms of like, can a kid become financially literate? Um, I think one of my big realizations over the past seven or eight years is that there's a impossibility to that. Um, you know, anytime it, it's like asking someone to memorize a map of the United States as opposed to giving them a GPS. There's just no way you could possibly know all the twists and turns, um, and it's it's just way too complex. I don't think it even makes sense to try. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's 15,000 banks and credit unions in the United States. They each have different interest rates across the board. Mm-hmm. Like, how on earth are you going to know, like, which CD to get, you know? I mean, there's just no way. There's no point in memorizing it. Every state has different laws around auto insurance, around your mortgage, etc. Um, every state has different laws around whether 529 plans for your kids are tax deductible. It just doesn't make sense to, like, learn all this stuff. So I, I think that's where the GPS analogy really comes in. Yeah, or just the ba- like you said, the basics. I wish someone taught me about taxes in high school instead of teaching me, uh, you know, I don't know, geometry. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Tim, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, we have the founder of Nerd Wallet and chief nerd and CEO Tim Chen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone dot com. Thanks for listening. Hey humans, David Smalley here from the Dogma Debate Podcast right here on Podcast One, where we talk about all the things you're not supposed to discuss at work, religion, politics, abortion, racism, slavery, and that's only when we open the Bible. We discuss Islam, Islamophobia, what does that even mean? We chat with vegans, animal rights activists, and even visit factory farms to see it for ourselves. I invite people from multiple backgrounds to convert me into their worldview. But as long as they're okay with being respectfully challenged, you better bring your evidence. And I never lose sight of how both the left and the right are seeming to lose their minds. So basically, we're solving all the world's problems right here on Dogma Debate. And you've been missing it. Watch our 360 virtual reality videos on the Podcast One app and download Dogma Debate on iTunes, Stitcher, or PodcastOne.com. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball, that's right, March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. 
I'm Ed Donahue.